Hello, everyone. My name is Box Populi. Welcome to a special edition of Countercurrents Radio Live on a Monday. Uh, it's been a while since we've been able to do one of these. Real life events kind of getting in the way, but we are here tonight. There is much to discuss. So we brought on a special guest, a very special guest indeed. It's Greg Johnson himself. Hello, Greg. How are you? Fine, fine. I, I feel like I, I set up a birthday party and then had myself invited to it or something. I'm honored to be here. I'm honored to be here. Anyway, it's great to be back. It's been a long time since I've done one of these things. The main reason being I've been doing a lot of traveling. And then after all the traveling, I was just exhausted this past weekend. And I just thought uh, my my brain is not worth, <laughs> isn't worth worth anything. And so I didn't want to do a live stream on Saturday. But anyway, I'm, I'm tanned, rested and ready. And so it's good to be back. All right. Well, um, yeah, I, I got into touch with you. Because um, I haven't been able to host these either for all sorts of reasons. And with everything that's been going on, I just couldn't help thinking, oh, we, we have to do something we got <laughs> we have to put up something. There's just so much to talk about. So let's yeah, uh, get with yeah, there's so much to talk about, and people aren't doing it quite right. So we've yes. we've got to add some little nuances and and spins here to get everything just perfect and dialed in. So that's the purpose of our show tonight. Finally, everything will come into clarity. And before we get started, just the usual housekeeping, we are streaming live on Odyssey and on DLive as usual. And if you are so kind to give a contribution to the Entropy uh, Super Chat platform, the address I'll put on the screen just now. Uh, there it is. And for those of you who are just listening, it's entropystream.live forward slash countercurrents. And uh, we'll take a moment to read comments sent there towards the midway point, about an hour into the stream, and then towards the end as well. Of course, you can also send contributions and comments and questions via Odyssey or DLive. Let me just check and make sure that everything is going well over on both of those platforms. I believe so. My internet is a bit slow tonight, so hopefully everything will be fine. So I see we've got Reed Johnson over there monitoring both platforms. Just give me a thumbs up if everything's going smoothly, and then we'll get go ahead and get started. So obviously, Greg, we're going to talk about the latest kicking off of aggression and conflict and uh, violence in the Middle East, in Palestine, in Israel. I, I assume everyone is familiar with what happened, but... If you want to just take a moment and uh, summarize the past events briefly, and then we'll get into the details. Well, the Palestinians of Hamas, basically Hamas, the Palestinian organization, about a week ago launched a series of attacks into Israel. Now, these attacks were a mixture of attacks on civilians and military targets. So there was stuff in there that was just outright terroristic, and there was stuff in there that you could say was legitimate military conflict, legitimate combat. 
These people believe they're in a state of war with Israel. They have some reason to believe that. It's not just an arbitrary declaration. And yet quite a lot of what they did, you would simply have to claim is terrorism, uh, targeting civilians for death and terror, because ultimately what Hamas wants and also what the Israelis want is they want the other tribe to flee. They want the others to flee in terror so they can have the land to themselves. This is the policy of extremist Zionists ever since before the foundation of Israel, where they used terror as a a tool of ethnic cleansing. And it's basically a Palestinian technique as well. And I can understand the feelings of Palestinians. I sympathize with Palestinians because I feel like I'm a stateless person living under Jewish occupation too. However, in terms of my long-term interests, I do not think I have too many overlapping interests with Palestinians as far as the state of Israel is concerned. I would really like the state of Israel to continue to exist because, and I would like next to it to be a stable, sovereign Palestinian state. Why? Because I would like to see in the future the Jewish and Palestinian diaspora populations in white countries to go home, to return. I would like these populations to be reduced. I do not, therefore, agree with the desire of the radical Zionists to drive all these people off their land because most of these people will be directed towards white countries. And that's already being telegraphed by Zionist propagandists in social media right now. And I also don't share interests with the Palestinians who would like to send 7 million Jews packing back to Europe primarily, because that's where most of their ancestors came from, at least most recently. Uh, And so uh, I'm trying to take a white perspective on this, a white-centric perspective. I want to take my own side as a white person. And I'm frustrated because most of the mainstream discourse and a lot of the dissident right discourse is premised on demanding that we take a side in this fight, that we we have a dog in the fight, or as Jim Goad said, a zog in the fight. I, I don't have a dog or a zog in this fight as a white person. And I think it's very, very important for us to understand these sorts of issues, to understand what a white-centric perspective on this would be, and to try and understand why some people who ought to know better are not taking a white-centric perspective on this. And I'm I'm thinking of people like uh, principally Eric Stryker of the National Justice Party of TRS, who has been, as the kids would say, cringe posting about this Palestine stuff. Uh, Mike Painovich has also been doing the same thing. Painovich went so far as to say that if you're not cheering on this attack, there's something wrong with you and you're probably in the service of evil. I'm sorry, I can't bring myself to cheer on massacring partiers at raves and things like that. 
I, I can't bring myself to do that, just as I can't bring myself to cheer on massacring Palestinian families in Gaza with airstrikes bombing their houses. And there's quite a lot of that that's been happening too. Stryker has been creating this extremely silly rhetoric about the nobility of the Palestinians, how if an AI were to generate the profile of somebody that conservative Americans would respect, it would be the Palestinians because they're so family oriented and love their gun rights and uh, are, are very God-fearing and, and including reverence for Jesus and all this stuff. Uh, it, it really strikes me as the kind of corn that establishment Republicans spin out about, say, Mexicans, those natural conservatives. Whereas the truth is, is that many Palestinian refugees, for instance, dual tide shared a study from Denmark showing that of a certain number of Palestinian refugees who were admitted, I think in the early 2000s, 65% of them ended up being criminals. Large numbers were on welfare. Many of their children, now there's a second generation, are criminals. These people are not the kind of people who we would want coming to our countries en masse. There are some elite Palestinians, very fine people, I've met some people like that. I know some people like that. But by and large, we do not benefit from taking in refugees of any kind from the Middle East. In fact, they tend to be a burden on, on Europe. And we should be very, very discerning about the kind of people we would want to come in. And most of them would not make the cut. Stryker has gone so far as to say now that our movement, which has very scarce resources, needs to pool its resources with Arabs in the United States to fight off state prosecution, state persecution that's been triggered by these events in Palestine, Syria, Palestine, Israel. It's not broken out in Syria yet, but anyway, it, it does threaten to spread. And of course, the thing that he's most thinking of are these calls in Europe for deportation of pro-Hamas demonstrators. I think it would be lovely if pro-Hamas demonstrators were deported from Europe. He thinks that we should take our scarce resources, the pro-white movement should take its scarce resources, and pool it with those of Arabs in America to prevent atrocities like that from happening. And at that point, I just think this guy has lost the plot. I think this is cuckoldry. I think we need a new version of the conservative meme to describe this behavior because we have a hard enough fight as it is without suddenly gallantly rushing to the defense of Palestinians and other Arabs who are hostile to the United States and are in threat of, de and are in threat of deportation. So a lot is going wrong in the movement and there's a lot of extremely bitter back and forth mostly coming out of the TRS camp, accusing people who don't see things quite their way as being the equivalent of counter-jihadists or you know, sellouts to the Zionist conservative establishment and so on and so forth. So I, I thought it would be good to talk about this with you because I think you've got a really good perspective on this. Well, I've been saying for quite some time that I really lament the fact that the, the dissident right um, ethno-nationalist, white, white nationalist, the online right, whatever you want to call it, and all the adjacent groups, they lack a Machiavellian edge. 
And so often we see arguments over current events or over major issues. They are reduced to the most utterly retarded, basic binary level, where if you are not in support of X position, then you must be obviously 100% in support of Y position. And things are not always so clear cut. And in this particular case, I just don't see what is the point of missing very wide open goals. This is a wide open goal that anyone with a bit of political new, anyone with a bit of that Machiavellian edge would be thumping the ball into. We have a situation right now where the hypocrisies, the cruelty, and the lies of the Israeli regime, the Israeli entity, Jewish power, is on full display. And thanks in part to the attempted reforms, the tepid reforms over on Twitter, the social media app formerly known as Twitter, people like Keith Woods and loads of us have been able to counter Israeli propaganda in a more effective way than ever before. So all of that is on display. The history of Israeli NGOs, Jewish NGOs, bringing, gleefully bringing, Muslim refugees, so-called refugees, into the West, into Europe, into America, is well-documented. And every time there is a Jewish person complaining about how now they've, they've never felt so unsafe, the streets are full of Hamas, pro-Hamas demonstrators. I can't believe how unsafe the Jews must feel. I can't believe how dangerous it must be for them. Writers of, in, the, in the Telegraph newspaper in Britain saying that uh, multiculturalism has failed if the Jews in Britain aren't safe. <laughs> because it didn't matter that the British haven't been safe for decades. That hasn't mattered. But now that the Jews of Britain are feeling a bit unsafe and uncomfortable, now it's okay to proclaim at the top of your lungs that multiculturalism has failed. So all of this is obviously in our favor. And then Absolutely. On, the other side, on the other side, you have state authority throughout Europe, and you have a groundswell of public support advocating for the deportation of non-Europeans from European countries because they are expressing extremist, Islamic extremist, or uh, terrorist sympathetic views. How is that a problem for anyone who's been working for ethno-nationalism, European nationalism, white nationalism? How? Be Machiavellian. Play both sides to your advantage. Instead of this moral melodrama and moral one-upmanship, do you support the Palestinians? Well, if you don't, you must be a, an Israel shill. Oh, you... You, you, you support the Palestinians, so you, what, what are you, some sort of terrorist sympathizer? Enough of this. I, I recently had a spat with someone 
who was telling me that I should unquestionably, unquestionably support the Palestinians. No reservations, because Arabs had an equally noble civilization equal to the Europeans in the Middle Ages, and because, in his words, they, the Arabs don't actually hate us. I'm sorry, <laughs> I, I cannot go a single day without reading reports of someone from an Arab state or the Arab ethnicity committing horrific acts of violence, rape, murder, muggings, etc., all over Europe. Just in Italy alone, over the past month, there have been three cases of Maghrebis, Egyptians, various so-called refugees. One was even living in a refugee asylum center, and he lives there, paid for by the Italian taxpayers, goes out during broad daylight and just beats up an old woman and, and robs her. And then, I guess, saunters back to the asylum center. Uh, he was an Egyptian. So, no, this idea... And also, what frustrates me is that every other day of the year, our belief, and it's backed up by almost 100 years of evidence, more than 100 years of evidence, our belief is that Israeli NGOs, Jewish activists, people with power, bring in to our countries this riffraff, these so-called refugees. They, they push for the immigration of Muslims, whether it's from the Arab states or whether it's from Chechnya or sub-Saharan Africa. They push for multiculturalism. They push for the, the mass arrival of these peoples into our countries. They want to get them as far away from Israel as possible. This has been going on since the very bloody founding of Israel. Get the surrounding Muslim Arabs as far away from our safe space as possible. Inundate Europe with this riffraff, with these human ticking time bombs. That's what we believe every other day of the year. We believe that Jewish power is actively subverting the best interests of European peoples by bringing by the boatload, these kinds of people onto our lands. But then whenever something kicks off in Palestine, suddenly there are so many voices who say, these are noble people. They don't actually hate us. We should take their side. It's one struggle. Let's go pool our resources together and take on Zog. It's just bizarre. It's overcomplicating something and creating so much division when, like I said, this is such a wide open, easy goal. Absolutely. When I uh, went to, I went to France in September of 2001. I went to the Fête de Blue Blanc Rouge that was put on by the Front National. I went and saw Le Pen speak. I actually attended a, a, a little reception where Le Pen came in and uh, I got to take pictures of my friends with Jean-Marie Le Pen, things like that. It was very interesting. Anyway, there was a meeting of Anglophone nationalists from the United States, Canada, and Great Britain in, in Paris at that time. And there were maybe 20 or 30 of us at the meeting. And it was very interesting that we started arguing with one another because 9-11 had happened a little more than a week before. 
basically. And travel was very strict, you know, security was through the roof, flying over, etc. There was this ominous feel to everything. And the people from the UK were up in arms about Muslims. Because some of these people had been watching as Muslim co-workers were openly celebrating the destruction of the Twin Towers, the the attack on the Pentagon, the deaths of thousands of, of people, thousands of Americans. Muslims in the UK were openly celebrating this, and they felt racial solidarity towards white Americans who were the principal victims of that. Even in New York, they were the principal victims of that, uh, those attacks. Whereas in the United States, people like me and others saw that these attacks were the inevitable outcome of Jewish dominance of our foreign policy. And so we were in a debate about whom to blame, the Muslims or the Jews. And it was going back and forth, and it was starting to get heated, and suddenly it occurred to me, wait a second here. This is a debate that we can't lose. If, if we can get the world debating who is more to blame, the Muslims or the Jews, we don't have to pick a side in that. Honestly, we have framed it in a way that whites can't lose. And, and it hit me that... It's fine for us to have these sorts of debates if we want. It's fine for us to go out and stake out a position, the more Jew-critical position, the more Muslim-critical position. But we shouldn't be fighting against one another about this. We shouldn't be demanding that we only take whatever position we're taking and and denying that the others are legitimate. Why? Because in a way we're both right. And the better position is to step back and look at the big picture and say, this is an argument that white people can't lose in a sense. If we get the the public debating in these terms, we benefit from this. If, if we get the public and what we see right now is very good. There are certain people in Europe who are suddenly saying multiculturalism has failed. Henry Kissinger has said multiculturalism has failed. Suella Braverman has said multiculturalism has failed. They're saying it because Europe is filled with people who are open supporters of terrorism. And they're openly demonstrating this in the streets. This is a good thing. I don't want to pour cold water on this. This is a good thing. We want this. Now, maybe they're saying this for the wrong reasons, but it's a start. Uh, And they want to to be very specific. They want to say, well, we should get rid of Hamas supporters or Palestinian refugees. But it doesn't take too much examination to, to note that, well, actually, no, it's not confined to them. There are demonstrations of solidarity in places like Pakistan and by Pakistanis in Europe. There are demonstrations of solidarity in the Caucasus. There are demonstrations of solidarity in Iran, in Turkey. It's not I've just seen, an Arab thing. Blacks in Europe, blacks in European countries attending these protests or these, these you know, rallies with Palestinian flags. Exactly. And, and, and they, 
And so it's very easy to broaden this to say, no, it's, it's all of these people who are a problem. And it's so easy to catch these people when they, when they get up and they, they bravely, gallantly say that we need to deport these foreigners to protect Jews. You might, it's a great opportunity for people like us to say, people like Mark Collett and Nick Griffin were talking about grooming gangs. And these people were put on trial and shut down. Who rules England and for whom is England ruled? If you're only concerned with the presence of these people here, if it makes Jews uncomfortable, not if it makes the native English uncomfortable. So it's a great moment where we can impeach the credibility of the elites as well. It's a, it's a huge opportunity. And why pour cold water on that? And, and it's just such yeah. an open goal. Another, yeah. another thing that strikes me as, as annoying and absurd about the NJP position on this, it strikes me as very similar to the white liberals who get down on their knees for BLM and say, we support the Black Lives Matter movement, thinking that by shouting, hey, I'm on your side, that's going to stop the raving black savage from curb stomping them. Just as we saw last week or two weeks ago, uh, that spate of deaths of progressives, uh, progressive liberals dying at the hands of at the consequences of their own delusions. Just one case after another, it was such a bizarre week. And it wasn't just in America. There were examples of it happening also on the European continent. You know, they think, well, I'm an Antifa activist. I'm an anti-racist activist. So if a black person attacks me, I just have, I can just say, chill, brother, chill. And it'll be fine. I'm on your side. Hey, I'm on your side. Well, guess what? It doesn't work like that in reality. The black guy kills you. And, and, and your girlfriend doesn't want to press charges because, again, I don't want to be racist. It just seems very similar to be saying about people who we know have a history of being in our countries and doing all sorts of bad things to us. And we know, see things in a very highly racial lens that if we just say some things like, hey, I support the free Palestine movement. Yeah, from free Palestine, totally down with it that they're 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 not going to be aggressive towards us anymore that we're all we're all going to be friends and work on a, towards the one struggle it, it's just the same delusion that white liberals yeah. have when they, when they uh put blm in the bio and get down on one knee for george floyd and when when a brick goes through their window and they shout outside hey no don't smash my house i'm on your side i support you guys it doesn't yeah. work like that yeah, I, I use this cartoon about Passover in the most recent announcement of this stream because, well, uh, there's all this tough talk about dead children and, and, and let's get real here about dead kids. But beyond that, there's a, there's a great piece that Jim Goad wrote more than a decade ago. It was one of the first things that I read by him at Talkie Mag, and it got me very excited about Jim Goad. I was bullish on Jim Goad and became a fan. It was, it was basically about Passover syndrome amongst white liberals, that white liberals go out and make anti-white statements. And it's like putting the blood of the lamb above their door so that they think that the, the anti-white mob will pass them by. But it doesn't work that way. They, 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 they signal, they cuck, they betray, and yet it doesn't actually work. There's no magic 
in race trader behavior in, in signaling solidarity with people who hate us. And it's the same with this as well. There's, there's no magic that's going to get you any special consideration. There's a lovely statement from the leader of Hamas, who's this ghastly looking Arab, who was ranting on about how the goal of Hamas is global conquest of the, uh, by Islam and getting rid of all the Jews and the treacherous Christians as well. And, and listening to that, it was kind of chilling. And the, the idea that there are people in our sphere who are whitewashing the, the nature uh, of these people uh, and cheering along largely just because they hate Jews and are, they're, they're frankly get off, they get priapic about Jews being killed. I'll, I'll make that accusation. I, I don't think it's, uh, it, it's unjust to put it in those blunt terms. Some of them are getting priapic over Jews being killed. I think it's unseemly. And I am not going to whitewash the absolute hostility of Islam as a religion and a civilization uh, to, to the white West, just, just because I have so much spite against Jews that I, because I hate Jews more than I love my own people. I think that's what a lot of this boils down to psychologically. Spite is a real emotion. There's the phrase, you cut off your nose to spite your face. What does that mean? It means that spite is a self-destructive form of hatred. It, It is a form of hatred where you hate your enemy to the point that it's more important than your own self-interest or the interest of your people. And I think there's a lot of that going on here. I think a lot of people have lost the plot. Anti-Semitism, which can be a reasonable position. Let's, and, and let, let's just call it being aware, awake on the Jewish question. Let's not use any negative freighted terminology like anti-Semitism. Being aware of the Jewish question can curdle into hating Jews, and it can go so far, it can become so corrosive, it can become so spiteful that you end up hating them more than you love your own people. Uh, And I think we're seeing some evidence of that. Years ago, I was at the American Renaissance meeting, I think it was in 2006. I was at the American Renaissance meeting in 2006, and I remember that Guillaume Fye was up there speaking. And at a certain point, he said and with this, this, this tone of concern, the state of Israel could cease to exist. And there were some people in the audience who applauded that. And he looked appalled. And I have to admit that just out of pure mischief, because I was so annoyed with his sanctimony, I do believe I applauded along with that, uh, with them. But afterwards, this fellow said to me, well, you know, if Israel ceased to exist, they'd all be here. And it hit me. It said, yeah, you're absolutely right. If Israel ceased to exist, we would have 7 million Jews who live in Israel who would be coming primarily to white countries. And because Jews are so inordinately powerful already and have such an abusive relationship towards my people, I think that would be an absolute disaster. And that's why I do not believe that I have the same ultimate interests as the Palestinians, because the Palestinians want that to happen, and I don't. 
So much to get into there. You mentioned the Christians who are being targeted with um, sort of violent threats. And again, about these, uh, you know, whites on our side who want to sort of do a, a white liberal pro-BLM move and side with the Palestinians. Jim Goat is obviously a fantastic writer at Countercurrence. But if I may toot my own horn, I wrote something for Countercurrence called On the Religious Sideshow, Taking Over Nationalism. And in that, I wrote about the bizarre way in which many of the e-crusaders who are on you know, pro, the pro-white side of things are more than willing to ally with Muslims, whereas they will gleefully take part in you know, the bashing of the pagans or the atheists on our side. Again, I just find so much of this absurd behavior really just lacking that Machiavellian edge, uh, lacking any coherency. Now, you mentioned the the image of the, the Passover. You mentioned the Passover. So let's get into the other side. We've talked about uh, you know, our position on the, the brown folks of the Middle East, the Muslim folks of the Middle East, and you know, their presence amongst us. Let's talk about the Israeli side. Let's talk about the Jewish side. So you mentioned the, the Passover. You've mentioned that without the state of Israel, we'd be living with uh, you know these millions of Jews in our countries. I actually think that in a globalized world, you could you could kick the Jews out of your country. You could go up to 110, 111, 112, 113 cases of Jews being expelled. It won't really make a difference anymore because we live in a globalized world and their influence can be, the puppet strings can be pulled from a distance. And another reason why simply concentrating all the Jews in one place won't really solve the problem is because it doesn't address the Judaic mythos, the Judaic matrix that we are all living in. We are all living in it, all of us, uh, especially in the United States, but also uh, to an increasing increasing extent in Europe uh, and the rest of the world. And you mentioned the Passover, and you mentioned, um, I think b- before we went live, uh, we, you mentioned examples of, in history, of Jews allowing other Jews, allowing their fellow Jews to suffer an attack or some sort of you know, atrocity because it served the interest of Zionism. And I think this is something that we need to really flesh out. So you can concentrate all the Jews in Israel, but if you don't address this demented desire that so many Jews have, and again, (laughs) people will say, well, it's the the secular Jews, it's the secular atheist liberal Jews who are the problem in Israel. European people's countries, in in America, in in Canada, etc. Not at all. The religious Jews, the the Orthodox Jews, are also a huge part of the problem. Right now, they are citing the Torah and passages of the Hebrew Bible to justify letting the IDF off the chain and do whatever they want. I've seen videos of rabbis saying, we don't play by your rules. It's time to show the world that we don't play by your rules. 
we play by the rules of the Torah. And it's time to let the Israeli military forces do what they need to do according to the rules of the Torah. And what are some of the rules of the Torah? Well, in the book of Numbers, we have examples of the Israelis, the Hebrews, being commanded to go and kill every living thing of the tribe of Amalek, down to the infants, the women, the cattle, the donkeys. And what do we see on Twitter? What do we see coming from the mouths of so many Zionists, so many rabbis? Level Gaza, flatten it, finish them. Doesn't matter if there's any civilians in the area, that's their own problem. We're way past that. Give them hell, said Jordan Peterson. Now, if we don't address this, then nothing really is going to change. If we don't address this, this desire that the Jews have to play a trick on Yahweh in order to get him to speed up the apocalypse, in order to get him to speed up the fulfillment of Jewish prophecies and, and bring the Messiah, send the Messiah, or manifest the Messiah on earth. So the Jews are going to instigate wars with Iran and provoke wars so we can have the Gog and Magog prophecy become fulfilled and drag Iran and Russia and, and the West, Edom, Europe, America by extension, into this world-ending war, because that's the birth pains of the coming of the Messiah. Well, you can concentrate the Jews in anywhere you want, but if we are still living in this matrix with so many white Christians proudly and happily clapping like seals, yes, finish them. It's fulfillment of the prophecy. Support Israel. They're God-chosen people. God gave them that land. They have every right to do what they need to do to defend themselves, and we're, we're happy to, to fight for them. I've seen boomer Zionists, boomer American Zionists putting, you know, Israel flag patches on their on their clothes and saying, I'm I pledge allegiance not just to America, but I also pledge allegiance to Israel and the and the Jews, and I'm ready to do whatever is necessary for God's chosen people. This is this is sheer madness, and it needs to be addressed. A lot of people on our side don't like to address this because it it pricks at a sensitive part of their worldview, which is their Christian religion. And Christianity is inextricably tied into this. And I think it's time we step over this, talking about taking our own side. I think it's time that we step over Abrahamic end times destruction fantasies. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I'm, it's, it's just appalling uh, to, to think of how many people are so deeply invested in that, though. We've got the entire Arab world, the Muslim world, uh, has its own apocalyptic religious beliefs. We've got Jews, we've, and then we've got Christian Zionists uh, who are collaborating with them. And ultimately, yes, in the long term, we have to get outside of, uh, we have to get outside of the Bible. Uh, we have to get outside of the Jewish story. We have to write ourselves out of the Jewish narratives and and just be be done with it and that and that means the judeo christian islamic narratives and and their mentality 
I long for a world where we're free of that. In the short run, though, I think we just have to we have to focus on we have to focus on what's happening now and and make making hay out of it. And again, I, I do think that a case is now being made for keeping these people out and actually removing some of the ones who are here, Muslims, Arabs. And that's a, that's a very good thing for Europeans. They're a much bigger problem in Europe than they are in North America. It's a much more salient in Europe. And I get why Europeans feel that way about it. Uh, I think that 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 is that is a huge opportunity we would we want to have a debate about why multiculturalism has failed and we want to say at a certain point well you know it's not just a failure for jews it's been a failure for europeans this whole time it would be nice to get people reflecting on the fact that right now european interests still don't matter in this debate although it happens to be in our interest that this debate is taking place we're being left out <laughs> We're being left out of the equation still, and we need to insert ourselves in this. If we can get prominent talking heads to admit that multiculturalism has failed, we need to press press the advantage that gives us. If we have talking heads and politicians who are going along with the idea that Palestinians are such terrible people that they deserve collective punishment by Israel, we cannot allow these people to say, well, once they show up on our shores, they'll be, they'll be innocent little lambs, like Morgoth said, right? Morgoth mm. made this point very well. We, it, it's, a, it's a completely absurd position to say that these people are so wicked in the Middle East that they deserve collective punishment. Uh, and then when they come to our shores, they're going to fit right in. There'll be no problem. But again, the absurdity, uh, the, 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 the apparent absurdity of you know, Jews, um, Israeli NGOs, sending the very people that they claim to be dangerous, extremist, violent, genocidal maniacs to our country, that again stems in part, a motivation for that stems in part from the religious motivations behind Zionism. Laurent Guillenot writes about this in what, one of the most fantastic and eye-opening books I've ever read called Our God is Your God Too, but he has chosen us. And then the chapter entitled The Levitical Terror, he writes about how both Theodore Herzl and then later uh, someone uh, who wrote for an Israeli sort of propaganda magazine called Davar, they both openly stated that in, if there's a lack of anti-Semitism, they will create anti-Semitism because they thrive on anti-Semitism. And in particular, the uh, Israeli writing for Davar said that if he could, he would recruit agents to go all over Europe where these European Jews are living so comfortably and provoke them with sort of fake hate crimes, we'd call them, you know, hoax, hoaxes, we would call them today, you know, spitting on them, telling them, you know, go away, Jew, all that kind of stuff, in order to get all of these comfortable, decadent Jews to move to Israel and get all the Jews in Israel. And right. so when I see all of these Jewish organizations uh, happily sending you know, the entirety of the third world and the global south to where we live and where Jews live alongside us in relative you know, comfort, uh, well, for me, it, the explanation or one of the explanations, because there are, there are others, but one of them is that 
Zionists don't mind breaking a few eggs to make an omelet. Absolutely. Those eggs are their fellow Jews. Exactly. And, and this, there, there are two reasons that are, that are very powerful here. One is they hate us and they want to, they, they want to destroy us. They want to dilute us ethnically. And that's them being and, very Machiavellian. Look at how they are thumping a ball through an open goal. We can get rid yeah. of the people we hate, send them to the other group of people we hate, fulfill prophecy, yeah. bring the Jews back to Israel because it's going to be too uncomfortable for them, fulfilling another prophecy. So we've got Ishmael and Edom wiping each other out. Check check that box. We've got yeah. the Jews coming back to Israel. Check that box. They're, that's Machiavellianism. Oh yeah, it, and it also serves uh, diaspora Jewry, Jewry's interests too, because the Jewish diaspora has always felt uncomfortable in homogeneous societies, and so they've always promoted multiculturalism, so that there can be no, basically, no national socialism, no anti-Jewish. Uh, movements that would kick them out. And so it, it serves both diaspora Jewry and it serves Zionism to have these people coming in. And this is one of the things that's naive about the so-called counter-jihad movement. The counter-jihad movement is, they put out a, a great deal of correct information. It's very, very useful looking at Douglas Murray's book, The Strange Death of Europe. They, they put out accurate information, but like most mainstream sort of conservative movements, they are absolutely aware of Jewish hegemony, and they're absolutely terrified of crossing any lines. And so they will try and make a case for preserving Europe from Islamization by pointing out constantly and with genuine solicitude, that this affects Jews. This affects Jews. And it's so, it's so charmingly naive to think that it hasn't occurred to the Jewish bigwigs in these NGOs or the Israeli politicians who are working hand in glove with them that, yes, of course, some Jews will be killed by these policies. But Jewish leaders craft policies every day of the week that they know will produce some blowback that will kill Jews. And they go ahead with it anyway. Why? Because they believe it is in their greater long-term collective interests. And they understand these long-term collective interests in slightly different ways, but they're very much caught up with the ethnic decline of white societies into multicultural babbles that they can more easily control and where they feel safer and creating pressures that will cause more Jews to move to Israel. And they are willing to take a certain amount of casualties to do that because they think that that is in their long-term collective interests. And so uh, I, a lot of these uh, counter-jihadist arguments struck me as pointless and, uh, and, and weak. However, I have to say that recent events seem to be bearing out certain elements of the counter-jihadist case, because there are voices now that are, are, are coming around to that. They're saying, wait a second, Jews are not safe in Europe, and we need to change policies. We need to talk about the deportation word. 
We need to talk about repatriation. We've been screaming for years to get people to have a conversation about repatriation, but European interests just don't matter that much to our rulers. Now that Jewish interests are at stake, suddenly it's possible to talk about deportation. And the counter-jihadists laid a case for that for more than a decade now. And in some ways, it might be bearing fruit. So we have to give them a little bit of credit for, for their work. I still don't think it's adequate because I don't think it's honest to, you know, I don't think we will save our race without budging Jewish hegemony in the end. But in a short, in the short run, I think this is great that this conversation is taking place, even though it's, it's, it's taking place within the confines of Jewish hegemony and without white interests coming into play yet. But it's going to be so obvious to more and more people as this debate goes on, yet why aren't we talking about white interests? And that brings me to something that we, we talked about earlier, which is this amazing rant from, oh, what's his name, Mr. Infowars. Oh, right. Well, I, I have that here. Alex Jones. Yeah. Before we yeah. get into that, I just wanted to, to say, I think, one of the main problems with the counter jihad folks like Douglas Murray and you know, Jordan Peterson end up becoming quite friendly with Douglas Murray, and they still are, is that they're obvious gatekeepers. They're obvious sort of you know sticks in the mud. They they don't go any farther than you know Islam bad. Uh, look, jihadists blew up some kids in Europe, so we have to you know obviously do something about that. But again, like you said, the facts they present are one hundred percent accurate and and necessary to know. Um, I still rate Douglas Murray. I, I, my opinion of him has fallen quite substantially, quite significantly, but I mean, that, that book that he wrote, The Strange Death of, Death of Europe, the title annoys me, and the fact that he didn't you know, produce any solutions to any of the problems that he's listing in those chapters, but the information in there, I, I, I know that that book red-pilled people that I recommended it to. So like you said, we should take, we should give them credit for their, their contributions. Another thing I want to add is that the very thing that has caused this conversation and all this worldwide hubbub, this very attack by Hamas itself, could very well be another example of Zionists sacrificing their own on the altar of, again, like sort of tricking Yahweh into speeding up the fulfillment of prophecy. I don't know what you, what you think about this, uh, Greg, but the idea that some paragliding Palestinians could just float into Israel and uh, take out you know, dancing Israelis, <laughs> it's just the absurdities of, of some of this. It's all very, uh, it's, it's kind of macabre, but they, the paragliding Palestinians float into Israel and take out hundreds of dancing Israelis. Um, everyone who was, you know, ex-IDF uh, and had the, the bravery to speak openly and honestly said that that doesn't make any sense because not even a mouse can approach you know, the walls of, of Gaza without setting off alarms, without there's cameras monitoring those areas 24 seven. There's the iron dome. You can't even sneeze in Israel or Palestine without the IDF, without Mossad knowing about it. And yet now we're supposed to believe that all of that security apparatus failed completely. And the three warnings from Egypt were ignored entirely. And because Hamas just pulled off the greatest surprise attack in history, but then if you look at what Israel is, how Israel is taking advantage of this attack, 
to again achieve its Zionist objectives, its its supremacist objective, its Yahwehist prophecy fulfillment objectives. It kind of fits that they that clearly this was allowed to happen. Absolutely, I, I don't know. I mean, it could be the case that they're just that stupid and lazy. I, I know of some concrete cases, which I will not talk about in public, where Jews who should have known better had absolutely terrible OPSEC uh, because they're arrogant and smug. And also because they they just don't, they're not paranoid enough <laughs> in the <laughs> end. Just, again, uh, it reminds yeah. me of, of the passages from Laurent Guillenot's book. Yeah, uh, you know, in in the in the, during the years of the Second World War, you had Jewish leaders both in the United States and in Europe um, rebuffing efforts to rescue Jews in Germany who might have mm-hmm. uh, the persecution really hadn't even started yet. But um, just the idea that the potential that Jews are going to be, you know, they're going to have their properties confiscated, they're going to be, you know, sent into concentration camps or something, and so. There was there were efforts from Britain and the United States to get German Jews out of Germany, and both American Jewish leaders and European Jewish leaders on the continent rebuffed those attempts. And one man in particular, Nathan Schwab, who was a member of the World Zionist Organization and a leader of the uh, Jewish Agency of Switzerland, said, I, "I won't get the words exactly right, but um, he said." With what will we bargain for? With what what will we use to bargain at the end of the war when the dividing of the land is taking place? The only way we get the Holy Land is if we offer a blood sacrifice. Basically, he said, "Those are that's our bargaining chip. Our bargaining chip is dead Jews." Absolutely, I, I remember that quote. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They knew the power of it then. I, of course, think that the leaders of Israel are absolutely capable of knowing in advance that something like this was in the works and letting it happen on purpose uh, to provide a pretext for war. I believe that that's the most plausible story of 9-11 too. And they're saying this is the Mm -hmm. worst thing that's happened since 9-11. Well, what happened on 9-11? There's ample evidence that Jews had knowledge of this. There's the, there's the famous Odigo message, warning of the attack on the day that it happened uh, from some messaging app company based in Israel. There is the fact that there are all these art students and movers uh, shadowing the 19 hijackers. Uh, there is great good reason to think that Israel had advanced knowledge of this and let it happen. And that's, I think, the most plausible case. I don't think they did it. I think it was done by Saudis. But I think they had advanced knowledge of it, and they let it happen. Why? Mm-hmm. Well, because as Bibi Netanyahu said way back then, this is good for the Jewish people. You know, mm-hmm. He, mm-hmm. He, uh, this is good for Israel. Why? Because they used this as a pretext to gin up a war of aggression against one of their major adversaries, which is Iraq. And then they used their, their golem, which is the mighty you know, United States, the mighty European man, mighty white man, to fight their wars for them. It's just so 
diabolical. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, one, one of the things that was very amusing to me, again, in the sort of conspiratorial discussions after 9-11 were, were claims that no Jews died. And this is proof that they that they were involved and that they created this. You look at the at the list of people who are dead that published in the New York Times, and there were obviously Jewish surnames there. But the 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 charming naivete of the people who think that if Israel was engineering this or letting it happen, that they would make sure that no Jews died, <laughs> that, that that they would care about that, uh, because well. It's just collateral damage. And again, they pursue policies every single day that they know will create terroristic blowback against Jews, and they do it anyway because it's in their long-term interest as they see it, collectively speaking. So, you know, don't give me these silly uh, silly stories that there were no Jews who died on 9-11. There are plenty. The Israelis just didn't care about that. And uh, I think that they had foreknowledge and they let it happen on purpose. If that is true, then I can believe certainly that a similar thing was done with a much smaller and less devastating attack, namely these, these recent attacks. Why? Because again, they want a pretext for you know, basically uh, barbarism and slaughter. They got eight billion dollars out of the United States just like that, you know, and and they'll just they'll just keep extracting money on this pretext as long as they can. They are going to do their their Gaza genocide. They are going to try and send millions of refugees streaming towards Edom or Amalek. What are we? We're well, we're yeah. we're just the dumping ground of the third yeah. world. Hmm. And uh, you know, I I I can completely believe that they're capable of that because I know they've been capable of worse within my lifetime. So yeah, it, it's a totally believable thing. Whether or not it's true, I don't know and I don't think we'll ever know, but it's totally plausible as an account. And yeah, it is a little strange. Either either their, their, fa their fabulous security measures are just smoke and mirrors or they knew about this coming and they let it happen. You judge what's most plausible. Yeah, and it's just it's something that I, I think more people need to ponder. The the I guess you call it Zionist anti-Semitism. And like I said, it's an open goal. We can expose the nature of the Israeli beast and we can agitate for the deportation of people who don't belong in our countries at the same time. But you mentioned uh, the Alex Jones video. So I have it here. Hopefully. This will work. We can uh, both listen and uh, watch it, and the audience as well. So let's see if this works correctly. It's been ages since I shared an audio and video file on a stream. Why do conservatives who've done nothing to Israel deserve to be persecuted and attacked like Hitler did in the beginning? Deplatforming, putting us in ghettos, lying about us, demonizing us. We can't take the news saying white people are terrorists and Christians are bad people. And you're like, well, we're not doing that. The point is, if you speak out against it, people will listen. My grandfather stood up for the Jews. Both of them almost out of the Army Air Corps. And I don't claim you owe me some debt. But at the same time, I don't owe you anything. And I am tired of being attacked. And the white supremacists make a joke. Oh, Jones pleads to his masters. I have been a friend to Israel. I have been nice. 
But it's time for Jews, particularly, to choose a side. Are you with the West? Are you with right to self-defense? Are you against communism? Or do you embrace those tenets? And if you embrace communism and disarmament and enslavement, then go, then get killed. I'm not the one killing you. Go kill yourself. Take your children with you. I'm sorry you're gonna get them killed too. I'm not saying I want your kids killed, but your bizarre behavior is causing this. Let us control armies and stop them coming here. Don't have the ADL attack me. Don't you point your finger at me trying to survive and live and say I'm the bad person. I reject that, and I'm sick of you. Opening our damn borders up to bring all these people in and brainwash them against us because I'm white. I'm not a person that's in identity politics, but you've made it that way. Everywhere it's bad because I'm white. Everywhere it's bad because I'm Christian. Everywhere I don't deserve to have a job because of what color I am. Everywhere I'm a bad person. No. You're your own worst enemy, not me. I don't want to kill you. I don't want to hurt you. I wish you prosperity. Can I think that? Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. So, it's amazing. I think Alex I is on his red pill journey. Is this real or AI? <laughs> is this real or AI? Yeah. Um, amazing. I mean, there, there's so much nonsense, so much boomer conservatism, so much Christianity, so much civic nationalism roiling around in his head. But through all that fog, he's he's focused laser-like on what's going on. And yeah, he's, he's demanding that Jews allow us to control our own countries. That says everything. Uh, like I said before, everybody, everybody in the media, everybody in Congress, there are 535 members of the U.S. Congress, they all know that Jews are the most powerful force in America today. They all know it. Elon Musk knows it. Every billionaire, every multimillionaire, everybody in academia, everybody who matters in America knows that you don't cross these people, that they run our countries on every matter that's important to them, and that they're running our countries into the ground, that they have created a poisonous atmosphere of anti-white hatred, and that they are principally responsible for opening our borders to the detritus of the third world and preventing any sensible attempts to stop white genocide, white replacement. We, we, everybody knows that. And the, the reason why they're not shouting it from the rooftops is A, because they agree with that and support it, or B, because they're just too damn scared yet because they know that if they say anything, all their rivals will use that against them, right? Even people who know yep. that, that it's true and that it's a problem. These people lack solidarity. They lack ethics. They, they will use this simply as a tool to dispose of a rival so they can, uh, you know, try and climb a little higher on the greasy, greasy pole of this system. It takes crazy people, therefore, to say the truth about the Jewish question. It takes people like Kanye West, right? And now we see a bit of craziness like that out of the mouth of Alex Jones. I, I think it's refreshing. So this is good. This is good. And let's hope Alex Jones 
keeps on this path. I, I hope that he does. He's not interested in identity politics, but identity politics sure is interested in him. And, and he, he's, and, and that's, that's the answer that we all have. You might not be interested in identity politics, but identity politics is coming for you and you can't fight it unless you engage in it. You might not want to choose the Jews as your enemy, but the Jews have chosen you. They chose you before you were born. Alex, go ahead. There are three things that Alex said that I wanted to pick up on, and you just mentioned one of them. And he says, I, I'm not into identity politics. I never wanted to be into identity politics, but you guys are making it be that way. And isn't it something we've often said for many years now? White identity politics is inevitable. It's inevitable. It has to be because they're making it this way. And so for Alex to say something like that, it's just phenomenal. It's a, it's a phenomenal step in the right direction, considering that he has such a vast audience of, you know, truth seekers um, who get this roadblock put in front of them on so many issues, including the issue of white nationalism, white identity politics, the Jewish question, and, and others. So for Alex Jones to say, basically, white identity politics is inevitable because you've made it this way, that's great. And then also, I thought it was interesting that he said, I don't owe you anything to the Jews. He says, I don't owe you anything. That's something that needs to be repeated. We don't owe them anything. They keep trying to blame all of us for the Holocaust, not just the Germans, but even the American soldiers who went and fought in Europe, the British, the French, all of Edom, all of Europe is to blame. Ken Burns made a documentary, such a slimy documentary, this year, I believe, blaming the Holocaust in part on American hesitancy to join the war. And when you couple that insidious lie with the information that I just mentioned earlier about how Jews rebuffed attempts by Britain and the United States to save Jews in Germany, it's just it's just so stinking, stinkingly putrid, the propaganda and the lies. And so it's true to say we don't owe them anything. They owe us actually quite a lot. We don't owe them anything. And then also something that caught my attention was when he said that you, the Jews, are your own worst enemy. Now, this is something that many rabbis have said. Occasionally, you'll find these videos. Usually they're uh, shared by Adam Green, who I think does great work on this uh, massive topic. And there's videos of rabbis giving their sermons or you know, whatever it's called in, in the synagogues. And they will say, you know, in a way, Hitler was right. Look at how the Jews at that time had rejected God. They had rejected Hashem. They had become communists. They had become Bolsheviks. They had become atheists. They had become degenerates. And Hitler's writing about this in his book. He's writing about how they've turned away from, from God and they become communists and they become subversive and they become degenerate. So in a way, Hitler was right. And, and Hashem was right. Hitler was Hashem's punishment for so many Jews turning away from the Torah, turning away from, you know, in their view, the Torah is holy and goodly. I disagree, but neither here nor there. But, you know, that was the punishment for turning away from the Torah, from turning away from the law, from turning away from Hashem. 
because the Jews were their own worst enemy at that time by becoming, you know, such bloodthirsty revolutionaries and subversives and degenerates. And so when Alex Jones says, you're your own worst enemy, it's just, we're all repeating the same, we're in the same cycle over and over again. It doesn't seem like there's any breaking this, uh, this loop. And in many ways, we're just reliving this, the same moments of, you know, 80 years ago. That's, that's really well stated. Uh, folks, if you would like to have your own thoughts, share it on the air. Why don't you send a super chat? Go to entropystream.live forward slash countercurrents. I think Pox can put the link on the screen. Yep. There it is like magic. I do, have some, I do have some super chats here to read. Oh, great. Well, great. One is from one is from just tonight. It's it's really simple. It says, welcome back. Uh, it's from Friedrich, and he donated 30 US dollars. So thank you very much. Thank Friedrich. you. And yes, we are happy to be back. So uh, thank you very much. I see something from Clarissa. Clarissa, thank you so much. She donates $25. And Friedrich also writes in with 10 US dollars. Uh, considering that the person who'd eventually take the credit for reversing the Great Replacement will potentially be revered as a god, taking into account how bad things are, why aren't there more takers? That should be incentive <laughs> enough. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, uh, well, he certainly would be like a Caesar or a Napoleon. Yeah, I yeah. Know. Isn't that interesting? God, god would, would yeah. uh, make it. There are people who think that Donald Trump is the Antichrist, but every every... There's always, I, I, when I was growing up, I remember people said Bono was the Antichrist. Of course, uh, conservatives thought Barack Obama was the Antichrist. And now Donald Trump is being uh, touted as a potential Antichrist figure because he's huh. going to do all these wonderful things, actually, in a weird way. You know, everything is so inverted in Judaism. Uh, yeah. The Antichrist achieves all these peace agreements and, you know, does all these wonderful things. And that's the sign that he's, you're evil. <laughs> you know? Right. Yes, he, 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 doesn't he create a thousand years of peace and uh, prosperity on earth or something like that? Uh, uh, but uh, a thousand year Reich. But anyway, um, <laughs> I don't know these stories. You know, I, I tuned it all out. I tuned out the Hal Lindsey stuff as I was growing up. But no, that's a very interesting question, Friedrich, because yeah, the person who turns around white genocide will be the savior of the white race. Why aren't there more takers for that? Why aren't there people in politics who lust after that kind of glory that will be remembered for thousands of years hence? Why aren't there more people like that? What has happened to politicians to make them so petty and small? It's really very interesting. I, I think uh, one word that can be used to describe it, one way of unraveling it is, well, liberalism. What is liberalism? Well, liberalism is basically uh, fleeing from grand politics. And there's a good reason for fleeing from that because grand politics at the time of the post-Reformation era when liberalism took place would basically consisted of wars between Catholics and Protestants over things like transubstantiation and the Pope. And it left Europe in ruins. And so it was not necessarily just how to put it sort of last man, like drooling, um, you know, I don't know, I can't even think of a word for it. Uh, just, just sort of a, a flatness of soul. 
that led to people wanting to turn away from that and, and say, there's got to be a better way. And so let's, let's try and refound society, not on things like holiness or glory, but on things like basic human needs, which is a very low and broad and therefore stable foundation of political order. And so that's how liberalism came about. It was, it was a disgust with the wars of religion. And it was an attempt to create a new founding of society on a low and stable foundation, namely private self-interest, the desire for a longer and com more comfortable life, to uh, enjoy material possessions and things like that. That's what liberalism was. And it has rewired Western man in such fundamental ways that now political leaders are just astonishingly petty. Why? Well, because the idea of something like the common good or sort of a human destiny, uh, any great projects, uh, those have been discredited. The last form of a great project really was communism, Marxism. And we saw how well that worked out as if, as if Christianity and the wars of religion weren't bad enough. We got this secular offshoot, the Bolshevism, instead of the Bolshevism of antiquity, the Christianity of modernity and everything, Marxism, which was one of the great banes, probably the worst thing that's ever happened to the human race. So yeah, people have turned away from any grand visions, any idea like the common good, any idea like pursuing glorious multi-generational projects. And uh, they just have this idea that if everyone's petty and thinks of his own self-interest, that somehow it'll all work out for the best. And we had not better start thinking big thoughts anymore because you know what terrible things happen when mankind thinks big thoughts. And so uh, most of the people who get involved in politics are just this petty. And so there aren't a lot of takers for age spanning eternal glory, but that's exactly what we want. In the end, we want people with that kind of ambition and we need to have people who think far into the future and to, uh, to, to get that, we have to replace liberal democracy and its entire ethos. Yeah, I totally agree. I don't have too much to add, only I would say that I'm inclined to believe that this question can be answered partly in a metaphysical sense. And Avila talks a lot about this in his writings. You know, there's a certain characteristic to various ages in, in, there's even the throughout history we had um, the different ages uh, the, uh, the ancient Greeks that the ancient Greeks believed you know the age of iron the age of bronze the golden age and the idea that repeats throughout many different cultures is that we're all in a period of, in a cycle that's descending from the golden age and getting progressively worse and um you know, I think the Second World War marked the end of an age and the beginning of a new one. And as you said, there was just so many, so many destructive ideologies, grand visions that just fell into horrible ruin, uh, caused so much death and destruction. Um, so I think, you know, we don't really live in a heroic age anymore. Um, I think even 
modern warfare. Another thing that Evola talks about, Junger talks about, Ezra Pound talks about, just how modern warfare is basically a mechanized slaughterhouse, and it doesn't really provide for that heroic manifestation, that, that manifestation of, hero, of heroism that uh, ancient war provided, that hand-to-hand -hand combat carried out, fought by warriors that came from a select noble class very often. You know, it, it was pretty bad going if you had to round up the peasants and, you know, fight with them. Pitched battles were fought by warriors. It was their life's profession, it was their life's work to fight, to wage war, to fight in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And their motives for doing it were quite different. I think all that has something to, has a role to play. And then also, I think living for so many years in this Judaic matrix, you know, it's not just that we have adopted a, a law, the Ten Commandments, there's histories of a different people and their patriarchs and, and their exploits that we read about in, in the Old Testament and in Sunday school. It's not that just that some of our morality descends from that, uh, that the Christian religion is in many ways an offshoot of that as much as some people want to deny it. It just is. Um, but our culture in general, in other areas, has absorbed a lot of Judaic behavior. You know, the penny pinching, the pettiness, as you said it, pettiness, selfishness, sort of slyness, that isn't quite characteristic of the great Indo-European civilizations uh, of the past before there was so much permeation of Judaic culture. I mean, I mean, think about who's been telling the stories in our books, in our films, the music industry. You know, I, I constantly refer to, you know, the 1930s and the 1940s and what we think happened as the Steven Spielberg version of history. And so I think that also plays a role that we are, we really are living in someone else's story. We're living in someone else's mythos and we are living according to their values. And in many cases, those values aren't really ours. And that's why many of us feel unmoored, unanchored, unsatisfied with modern life. It's a it's a big topic to get into. Uh, not quite what this stream is about tonight, so I'll leave it there. Um, over on the live, we've got some donations. Gaius Maximus donated five lemons. Billy Free Texas or TX, if that stands for Texas, he donated two ice creams. So thank you very much, gentlemen. What else happened, Greg? We could talk about the Polish election results. We could talk about the Armenia situation, which ties into Israel, given that Israel supplied arms to Azerbaijan in their effort to ethnically cleanse Armenians from a certain patch of land over there. Um, what else caught your attention this week? Well, I have not been following too closely the results of the Polish election. I'm reaching out to a couple of Polish contacts. I would like to see if I can get an article about this. Uh, what are your thoughts about it, though? It really is a sad reversal from, what, eight years ago or so when Poland had presidential elections and the left had zero seats in the parliament. I think it was not that terribly long ago. But law and justice has 
They've messed it up. They messed it up with pettiness and corruption, basically, which is very, very sad. That's about all I know. What are, you, what are your thoughts about this? Well, I have a few Polish contacts. I have a few IRL Polish friends. And basically, I really think nothing is really going to change. As we've seen with uh, the election of Giorgia Meloni and Fratelli d'Italia over, uh, over in Italy, as we saw with Brexit and 13 years of voting for the Tories, the system kind of maintains the status quo very well. So even though this new party led by Donald Tusk threatens to be a progressive, open borders, everyone, everyone is afraid that Poland is not going to open its borders and let in all of those very um, grim, threatening, dodgy men gathering in throngs at these border fences, you know, cutting it open with bolt cutters and, and really, you know, looking like a, a besieging army. We're supposed to believe that these are helpless refugees. Video footage suggests otherwise, as it often does. I don't think he's going to do that. I think um, it will just be basically a pro-European Union uh, government who will try and get back into the good graces of the EU. I think they will probably... Uh, the new government will not fight so much about the EU's new plan to just basically share the load of you know the third world coming into our small countries. You know, every every European Union member will just have to take its fair share. And uh, Hungary now with Orban will be the last holdout saying we don't believe there is such a thing as a fair share. Keep us out of this crazy plan. Whereas Poland will now say, okay, we'll. We'll agree to take in our fair share, but let it be a very low number. I think the reason why the conservative, quote unquote, you know, nationalist, kosher nationalist party failed was because people in Poland are sick of bickering with the EU. They're sick of perhaps being punished by the EU. There's a lot of subversive propaganda in Poland on social media. This is another reason why I think that, again, you can put the Jews all in one area, you can ban the chai comms or whatever, but social media is something I think you know, ethno-nationalists have to deal with. It's not just a question of blood and soil, but we also have to deal with this metaphysical world. We have to deal with the meta world of social media, the internet, and the things that are, are put up there um, in Poland. On platforms like TikTok and Instagram, um, it's very common to see a propaganda that makes Poland feel ashamed for not doing its part to take in refugees. It makes Poland feel ashamed for starting to have doubts about just how much they can support the war in Ukraine, the, the, the war effort in Ukraine. Because that's another thing that the conservatives were starting to waver on and saying, you know, we need to seriously think about how much supply, how, how much arms we can uh, keep sending to Ukraine. And it, it's a tricky situation for Poland because they're Ukraine's neighbor. I mean, they're right there, right next to that conflict. And so ultimately, I think that boomer Poles and young female Poles flipped the country in, and, and ended eight years of kosher nationalism. And now, you know, the sort of uh, centrist 
centrist left, which is in fact nowadays quite extreme left, uh, will be in power. But like I said, I don't think too much is going to change. Actually, I think you know Poland was already letting in a huge amount of Indian immigrants to, as always, the justification is filling gaps in the labor market. There's a lot of lies surrounding Poland. Jack Sobiec was on Twitter, tongue in cheek, posting a video of you know a square in Krakow, totally empty and totally tranquil, saying, "Here's live footage of the massive Palestinian pro-Hamas you know uh, rally happening in 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 Poland." You know, obviously the joke being that there isn't one happening. That just wasn't true at all. That wasn't the case. There were plenty of pro-Palestinian rallies in in Poland. There is, those people are in Poland. And so I, I just don't think it's that big of a deal. I don't think Poland was this bastion of right-wing nationalism or Christian conservatism. Cracks were, cracks were in the wall. And then I think also that young Poles and boomer Poles, the statistics show that boomer Poles, um, I think they did vote pretty, uh, pretty much in favor of the, uh, the new incoming opposition parties, I guess they were, and then young polls also. So that would be my analysis of it. The Law and Justice Party basically struck me as ideologically about what you'd get if you had a country run by National Review magazine circa 1986. It was basically a combination of Cold War anti-Sovietism, which was very real for the polls, obviously, Christianity, Catholicism, especially, and free market ideology. And I'm sorry, but that mix is not enough to save a country from the forces that are out there to destroy it. If you believe in the free market, well, we need to fill in gaps in the labor force. Uh, if you are a Christian, well, why don't we, in, why don't we have Christian migrants come in? They'll go for that. About the only healthy thing is uh, in, in that coalition or in, the, in that, uh, how to put it, ideological complex is a Cold War anti-Sovietism, which doesn't seem so out of, out of style anymore or out of sync with the times. It seems like Soviet-style imperialism is back. And so that, that was actually quite apropos. But yeah, it's, they don't have enough ideologically to counter the anti-white, anti-nationalist forces that are out there and that are seeping in in every way through things like social media. And of course, being conservatives, well, they tend to be unimaginative about politics, about metapolitics and culture. And so, you know, as long as the uh, checks don't bounce, it doesn't matter who owns newspapers or social media and stuff like that, even though, of course, those are massive implements of soft power, which are in the hands of their enemies, sadly. I remember in 2017 or 2018, Stefan Molyneux made a documentary film traveling to Poland and in praise of that country, it's basically a, a love letter to Poland. And he just loved how, you know, the Poles have projected and resisted communism and they've rejected and resisted Nazism and they just want freedom. And of course, being the libertarian that he is, uh, that, you know, Stefan Molyneux just loved that. But like, like you said, you know, that just doesn't cut it. It's not strong enough to resist what 
we are up against. Some comments over on the Odyssey chat that I wanted to address that I found interesting. Clown World Gamer wrote, the thing that infuriates me the most about the Ukraine situation in the EU is that most of these governments are all big talk. They love to talk about how much they support Ukraine's war effort, but in practice, they are doing nothing to increase Europe's military capacities. I, I sympathize with that comment. I, I say many times that European countries need to stop being America's vassal. They need to take care of their own defense needs, their own military needs, reinvest in those and stop allowing America to have so much sway and have all these military bases. And these military bases are in Europe all over the place because it benefits America, obviously, to have them there. And also it kind of benefits the Europeans who can just trust that, you know, the American military will take care of things. Donald Trump famously complained about how little Europe contributes to NATO. So yeah, I, I think that's a worthy complaint there from Clown World Gamer. Any thoughts on that, Greg? Yeah, I think you said it all. I, I agree with what you said. One comment in the chat that I was wanting to follow up on is uh, a comment about the voice referendum in Australia. I thought this was a wonderful win for sensible white people. Uh, I, I found the whole idea of this referendum to be quite vague. And apparently people were being asked to vote on something that would somehow raise the status of aboriginals in Australia, but they weren't actually given a clear idea of what that would entail. You know, it's sort of like, well, we have to pass the bill before we know what's in it, something insane like that. So, but, but it was, it was basically third worldism and anti-white guilt against white Australia. And the white Australians voted no on it. And I was very, very happy to see that. I was very happy to see the role of some of our people in Australia prominently coming out against it as well. So I thought that was a, a bit of a white pill. What are your thoughts on that? I didn't pay too much attention to it. I follow Blair Cottrell and, um, you know, he was basically my go-to for any information about that, but I wasn't too focused on it. I'm happy with the result, obviously good for Australia. And I did catch in the aftermath, a video of a black woman and, uh, she was basically saying that this result should encourage uh, black Australians, minority Australians, marginalized Australians, it should encourage them to rethink how they want to engage with Australia. And maybe trying to be kind is no longer the way, the, the correct way to engage with Australia. Maybe it's, maybe kindness is, is over with. And it's no more to, Mr. Of, nice guy from the yeah, left. That's uh, great. Uh, that's great from the people who gave us the gulag, right? No more Mr. Nice guy right. from the left. She uh, said even something to the effect of, you know, so many times black people in particular are told to rein in their anger, don't express their anger. Well, maybe it's time that they, that they do express their anger, that they do let off some steam and that that will define how they interact with Australians because clearly the kindness method didn't work. So she's just making, you know, veiled threats to Australians. Um, bring it on. 
Uh, yeah. We want this kind of uh, polarization. If, and if aboriginals think that they can win, well, they're huffing more than just gasoline, if that's uh, their, <laughs> their view. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, good result overall. Yeah, and a, a, a very positive result, I think. Folks, I want to announce something. One of our supporters who goes by the pen name of ACC Reader has offered a matching grant. He's very, very serious about countercurrents, making its goal this year in fundraising. And we're really quite far from it right now. And he is offering to match up to $1,000 in donations. But there's one stipulation. He wants these to be first-time donors. So if there are any first-time donors out there, uh, potential first-time donors listening, go to Entropy Stream. Uh, there it is, like magic. Entropy Stream drop live forward slash countercurrents. Hit the green button. We're not streaming there, but you can leave a comment and a donation. And if it's a first-time donation, and you can just make a little note to that effect, it will be matched. And we very much appreciate it. Countercurrents uh, set out at the beginning of the year with a fundraising goal of $300,000. We got to the beginning of October, and we had just barely squeaked over the $100,000 mark. Now, in fundraising, that's a very bad sign because half of all fundraising happens in the fourth quarter. And so if we were going to have a fighting chance of getting to 300K, we should have been at $150,000 rather than $100,000 at the beginning of October. However, the fact is, is that we are in a global recession. We've been, as far as countercurrents is concerned, we've been in a recession all year long. Around the beginning of the next year, they'll finally admit that there is a global recession, but we've been feeling it all year long. Our book sales this year have been down more than 60%. Why is that? It's not because we have stopped publishing good and interesting books. It's simply because people don't have the disposable income. Inflation has just taken a huge bite out of people's discretionary income. People are also frightened about the future. They don't know what's going to happen. And so they're holding back on purchases of things like books. They're also holding back on donations to things like countercurrents. And it's not just countercurrents. It's happening with other organizations within the broader white positive movement. And it's happening even outside of our movement with mainstream charities. So... We're not doing anything particularly wrong here, I guess is the message. We are simply in a bad environment, a bad economic environment. I started countercurrents in 2010. We were in a, in a recession then, basically. We were in the aftermath of the 2008 uh, global downturn. Smart people would have said, no, Greg, wait a few years. Wait, wait at least a year to start it. Well, I couldn't do that. I've never believed that political radicals should pin our hopes on the success of the economy, right? It's like believing that we can overthrow the most unjust system in the world and monetize it the whole time on their YouTube 
and other platforms while we do it. It was never realistic. We want to be a movement that is as independent as possible from their system. We want to inculcate a mindset that's as independent as possible from their system. We want people to think of it as their system, not our system. And yet reality is what it is. And we live in this system. And also most of the people who support us have conservative priors or libertarian priors. So in the left, if there are bad economic times, leftists treat that as a signal to go all in. They think that they can exploit bad economic times. On the right, we have lots of people saying, no one's going to wake up until there are bad economic times. But when the bad economic times come, suddenly they get prudent and think, well, I got to cut back. Wouldn't be prudent. They just don't have that killer leftist instinct, that heedlessness that the left has. Why? Because ultimately, most of our people aren't thinking in terms of overthrowing the system. They're thinking of themselves as in the system, as part of the system, and they're following system incentives. I don't know how to break out of that, aside from just making people aware that that is a pattern in our thinking. But I want more of our people to start going all in when the economy gets bad, because like most of them say, people won't wake up until they're not fat, dumb, and happy with prosperity. So I'm do, I am hoping that we can gin up some enthusiasm in the last quarter and get us at least close to that goal because, well, we're not raising money to throw wild parties, right? As one of our donors put it, this fellow ACC reader put it, he says, I know Greg, he doesn't live lavishly. He doesn't even own a car. I'm not doing this because I lead a lavish lifestyle. I'm doing this because I want to pay writers and other content contributors like Pox. And uh, if I can't pay people, fewer people can contribute to the cause. Or if they do it, they're going to do it in their spare time because of economic necessity. So there, we have many writers who, who donate their writing, but we have other people who they need a little help, even if it's just an honorarium, uh, because they put a huge amount of effort into writing. And if we, if we paid them an hourly wage, well, we couldn't do that. But we want to give them something and the term honorarium is a good term. It's a token of our appreciation of the creativity and craft that goes into creating these articles. It's the same with podcasts and things like that. We want to be able to pay people who are asking for pay, who need it, who aren't donating it because they do good work and they deserve it. And if we can't do it, we have less of it. We have fewer people contributing to the cause that way. So that's why we do fundraising. So if you haven't donated yet, go to entropystream.live forward slash countercurrents, or you can send a tip through Odyssey. If you're a first-time donor, it will be matched, and we very much appreciate it. There is a donation over on Odyssey. Again, it's from Clown World Gamer. He donated $5. 
Thank you very much. And he says, why don't more politicians take up this challenge? Now, this is going back to the theme of where is the great leader who will take up the cause of white people, European peoples, when there's so much potential for glory, famous, immortal glory? So why don't more politicians take up this challenge? Because it requires a great deal of charisma, ambition, and mental acuity to succeed. And because the risk is much greater than taking bribes to govern for these lobbies instead. Yep. Uh, yeah, that kind of sums up the pettiness and the short-sightedness um, that we spoke about. And yeah, there is a lack of courage. Um, on the last stream I hosted, the last counter-currency I hosted a few weeks ago with Endeavor, we talked about how so many of the leaders in what's called the West, it's a term that I often put quotes around because I, I agree with Alain de Benoit when he says, you know, the West kind of just refers to Britain and the United States, and I consider myself a European, a Frenchman, but we've all kind of become a part of, you know, the West now, even, even arch enemies of Britain and America have become subsumed by Western values. So uh, as a shorthand, I guess it's appropriate, but yeah, there's just a huge dearth of courage of courageous politicians, you know, someone uh, who will say, no to the NGO boats. And when the courts try to uh, threaten them with kidnapping charges, they will say, fine, I'm, I'm a leading politician. You really can't hurt me. I have money. I have backers. I have influence. So let's go. Take me on. Um, Salvini did that to an extent, but um, he, kind of, he kind of put his tail between his legs in the end. Whereas Endeavor and I were talking about how, you know, if only that had happened to someone with true courage, you know, the outcome might have been very different. And in fact, it might have been you know, system changing. The courts might have been the one that failed and um, all of their hypocrisy and incompetence uh, exposed and you know, some new direction would have been blazed. But yeah, I, I think that we've uh, fleshed that question out. Greg, if you got any thoughts? I am just refreshing to hoping for those first time donors to show up because it's important. Let's talk a bit about Armenia and Azerbaijan. I have a strong pro-Armenian sentiment. And some of our early supporters were Armenian Americans. And I met a few of them. And they they contributed. One of them was a writer for countercurrents, others were donors. And it was just interesting because I didn't have a very clear sense of where Armenia was or what it was all about. And so I learned a bit about its history. So, but I, I've sort of formed a, a, an affection for Armenia just because of its history and because of these, these connections that I look at Armenians as sort of your, our cousins. If they're not Europeans, they're our Unfortunately, I think your Wi-Fi connection is uh, breaking up because your, your microphone's cutting out. Well, as we wait for Greg to come back, yeah, I, I think Armenia is a fascinating place. You know, it has history that goes back quite far indeed. There's a fantastic, very well-preserved Roman temple up in the mountains. If you see pictures of it when it's in winter and there's snow all around, 
Guardian. Usually you don't yeah. see Roman temples with that sort of snow environment uh, setting around them. Um, and yeah, it's uh, it's a really interesting place. The The conflict there, it just shows again Israeli hypocrisy because Israel was the primary supplier of weaponry, high-tech advanced weaponry, to Azerbaijan. And again, talking about courageous politicians, um, the leader of Armenia, the president of Armenia, just complete coward, complete coward who abandoned his people, abandoned the fight for the Armenians in this region, and let basically just, just picked up a white flag and started waving it. And so there was much protesting and, and huge you know, displays of, of discontent by many Armenians who felt utterly betrayed by their leader. And it's because modern leaders are petty and cowards. Greg, how are the uh, audio conditions, or Wi-Fi conditions, rather? I, I seem to be back, so. But I'm, I'm listening, so go ahead. Uh, I, I do think it's absolutely tragic. It's, it's a wonderful example of, well, I'm an ethno-nationalist, and I think, the, oh, here's the lesson of the Holocaust, folks. It's the lesson of the Jewish Holocaust. It's the lesson of the Armenian genocide. And it's a lesson that we should all take to heart. And the, the lesson is this, stateless peoples are easily susceptible to genocide. We should take that to heart because whites in all white countries are basically now stateless peoples and with effectively no borders and the tritus of the third world flooding in, we are being su subjected to slow genocide. The Armenians were a very large people and a very important people in the Ottoman Empire. They saw in Europe the various Christian subject peoples of the empire rising up and becoming independent in Greece, in Serbia, uh, Montenegro, places like that. And they wanted their independence and they were subjected to a series of massacres, first under the Ottoman sultans and then under the post and then under the young Turk government. And it was a, it was a modern genocide. And they managed to create a tiny state, whereas their, basically their region was much larger. And there were, there are two regions that there's Armenia proper. And then this area called Nagorno-Karabakh, which was majority Armenian near the end of the Soviet Union there was ethnic conflict between Armenians and Azerbaijanis, Azeris, over this and other areas because Nagorno-Karabakh wasn't contiguous with the rest of Armenia. And there were Azeri-occupied zones that were not contiguous with Azerbaijan. It was a clear case of ethnic conflict. And the solution to ethnic conflict is to give these people their own spaces. And uh, unfortunately, Armenia, which was one of the most militarized and mobilized countries in the world, I think is really second only to Israel, actually, as an armed camp, was led by an absolute coward. And when Azerbaijan attacked, they basically, the government collapsed. The nerve of the government collapsed. The people were willing to fight. 
And now a year later, this, this region has been basically ethnically cleansed. And now there's a threat to actual Armenian territory, an actual war between Armenia proper and Azerbaijan, which is just a sign of, of well, a number of things. One, weakness breeds contempt and causes war. Two, the destabilization of these great hegemons, Russia and the United States, is causing all kinds of opportunistic conflicts to, uh, to flare up. As the United States declines and as it gets bogged down in conflicts, that means that other conflicts are more likely to ignite. And so the, the world that we're entering is going to be filled with these bloody ethnic conflicts. And it, it's partly due to the decay of the United States as a hegemonic force, but also the, the decay of Russia as a hegemonic force, because Armenia is a de facto protectorate of Russia now. Yeah, I think, again, going back to ages, the beginning of an age, the end of another, I, I think there is something to this. I'm talking about, you know, the things that we write for countercurrents. This is something that will be an article eventually. You know, the age of Pisces was this age of spiritual introspection. It was an age of ideologies. It was an age of mankind attempting to reach the divine. The symbol of the age of Pisces is the fish, who also has that symbol, Jesus Christ. That should pretty much explain how that age was defined. It was a very religious age. Um, it's a very ideological age. And so one would think that that would mean it was an age of peace, uh, of priests, of monks. But in fact, there was quite a lot of war, and it ended with the greatest catastrophic, most catastrophic war ever. And so now we are either already in it or approaching the age of Aquarius. People are saying that you know the traditional view of it is that this is going to be an age of cooperation and communication and mankind reaching new planes of existence. So you might start thinking, well, that refers to transhumanism. And of course, social media, the internet of things, that the global communication and cooperation. But I wouldn't be surprised if this age begins with catastrophic conflicts as well, as people figure out just how we want to live in this new age, in this globalized age, in this hyper-connected age. I think the future is the past in some ways. And so we are going to see nations, tribal conflicts, disputes over blood and soil. And I think Fukuyama is wrong. History isn't over. But again, we don't really live in that heroic age. So it will be modern warfare. <clears throat> it will be, you know, drone strikes targeting civilian areas the mechanized slaughterhouse that I mentioned earlier. It's, it's going to be very interesting times. And I think, you know, how nationalists and how nationalism behaves in this age is going to be very important. Perhaps, you know, people, you hear about the characterization of the age of cooperation and communication and humanity working together. And you think, oh, well, that's just, that's the globalist plan, isn't it? That's the utopian Coca-Cola commercial, isn't it? But what if it isn't, though? What if they lose and we win? And the age right. of communication and cooperation is actually defined by peoples understanding that, hey, nation states are good. A place for every race is a good thing. It's a good idea. There's no getting away from blood and soil nationalism. There's no getting away from 
tribe, we are social creatures. We, we need to belong to a people, to a culture. It's good to think beyond yourself, your immediate needs. It's good to have generational long-term plans. It's good to have glorious projects, glorious ambitions for you and your people. It's, it's good to have a people. Let's maybe stop with the deconstructing of peoples. And that's how we will have cooperation. And that's, um, that's, that's something to keep in mind for, for nationalists. Again, going back to the idea of loving what you defend more than hating what is in front of you. I think that's a beautiful way of wrapping up. And I want to encourage everybody who's listening and wants to hear more to just toddle on over to Millennial Woes' channel and listen to his Monday night live stream because I'm looking forward to it myself. So thank you very much for joining us. We had a very good audience on this impromptu stream. Thank you, Pox, for helping out, being the host. It was great. We will be back. Yeah, we will be back soon with another episode of Countercurrents Radio. And uh, I, I really appreciate everyone for coming out tonight. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye.